This week on the Truce Podcast, I talk with Caitlin Schess, author of The Liturgy of Politics. We discuss Christian political involvement and some of the false gospels incorporated in evangelicalism. Listen to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or at trucepodcast.com. This is Troy and Joel, and you are listening to Revive Thoughts. One must be driven to one or another of these two, either to deny the truth of the fact and circumstances of it, or to believe that Jesus Christ is truly and properly God. Every episode, we bring you a different voice from history in a sermon that they delivered today. We are bringing you a sermon from John Gill. It was preached November 1736. Joel, I am excited to bring this sermon back to life. I found this in the book almost a year ago. It was in a really old English. And if you're not familiar with old English, maybe it's something you're not you're not picking up old sermons like me. You d- may not know this, but some of the things that make these very difficult sermons is that they turn the Fs, all the Fs are Ss. And so just if you can imagine if your keyboard was just instead of S, you had Ss, and that, that's the sermon. And there was just tons of old English work like that. Um, I edited it for a while, and then I actually sent it to another editor on our, editor on our team, Ben, and he took another crack at it in October. So this is a double edited sermon. That was how much work it took. Uh, it's had multiple people attempt to speak it, and now it's finally here and ready. It's a very exciting moment for me. It feels like an accomplishment, but it's also it's a really interesting sermon. It came as this kind of commemoration or this remembrance of this, I I can only describe it as maybe a hurricane that hit London about 20 years or so before, smashes London, smashes Europe, and it was so bad that they made it a holiday. And so when they have this moment to remember the hurricane on this day about 20 years later, John Gill is chosen to give a sermon. He gives this sermon you're going to hear in a little bit. It's very exciting. And there's even a moment where if I, you listen to it, maybe you hear the same thing. But it sounds to me like he points at somebody kind of in the crowd and is like, you remember the hurricane? You were on a ship and knocked off the boat when it hit or something like that. So, I mean, somebody in the crowd remembers that hurricane so well. It would have been the day he was lost at sea almost. So very interesting moment that kind of comes together and brings the sermon together. So we really hope you enjoy it. But first, let's get to the story that is John Gill. Yeah, and I mean, Troy's saying hurricane here, but I mean, I know they're not probably called hurricanes in Europe. There's a typhoon or or a tropical storm or whatever Nor'easter, I don't know what you would call a big windy rain attack. It was this devastating storm that that, killed a lot of people. Again, it would be kind of like us, you know, like remembering 9-11 or something A Hurricane Katrina moment, maybe. Oh, sure, That was a holiday. Right, yeah. John Gill. Okay, so this man was born right at the end of the 1600s, the year 1697 in England. His father was very active in the church and helped form a group of dissenters from the church that they called the Particular Baptist Church. Now, again, we're right at the end of the 1600s, going into the 1700s. Um, We've talked about this era in England before. The the English Civil War has ended by this point, um, but it's still a difficult time. And we kind of have ep- other episodes in this area. If you go back and check out like our John Bunyan's last sermon that he preached or Thomas Watson's sermon on joy, that'll help you understand this era. English Civil War is pretty confusing stuff. Yes, it is. <laughs> We've said that before. That's right. not, it's not the easiest portion of history to try to get to you. Right. One of the side effects coming out of that is, I mean, well, well one of the side effects going into it, we see pilgrims coming to America for religious yes. freedom. And Puritans following behind them. Exactly. 
after the wake, there's also these people that are looking for more religious freedom than mm-hmm. what the state is giving them. And that's what his family falls into. These, When we say a dissenter from the church, they're people that are breaking away from the Church of England to worship how they want to worship. And this is the environment that John Gill grew up in. He was within these religious infights from a, a young age. In, growing up in his school, the principal required students to pray at the Anglican service, and, and he didn't want to do that, and there was a, a big falling out because of that as well. And this may sound like, okay, you're listening, you're going, okay, I live in you know tw- much later time in a different country, or maybe you still live in England, but you're like, that's a long time ago dissenters, non-dissenters, congregationalists, all these different names, does it matter? It mattered to him. He was literally had to be, he was kicked pretty much out of school because he would not go along with the Anglican church at the time. So sometimes we may get a little bit like these names and things are confusing, but for the people who lived it, it wasn't just, this is different theology. I'm going to go to the church down the road. It was, I can't go to school anymore because I I believe in God, the same Christian God to a degree, but just different ways of worship. And it cost him his schooling. So it is a, it is a big deal. And I don't want to I think it can be easy in a world where we have many, many, many denominations on every corner to not see why that's a big deal. But in their world, it was huge. Mm. Although at that point, he may not have needed school anyway. He is, we talk about these guys a lot, geniuses pretty much really. And he is definitely one of those guys. Uh, John Gill learned Greek and Latin and had read through the entire New Testament in Greek at the age of 10. Uh, and if you've ever been to seminary or you have ever learned a foreign language, you know probably how difficult what I just said was. And he was doing it at 10 with no online commentaries, no blue letter Bible or lexicons or any of those things that we have today. Uh, he would teach himself Hebrew with just a dictionary in his own time. His free time, he would spend, again, a kid, you know, 11, 12, and 13, teaching himself Hebrew with just the dictionary. The legend um, is that he was converted at the age of 12 while listening to a sermon. And uh, the preacher, which, I mean, again, he had already read through the New Testament in Greek, but he, I guess at 12, was convicted when the sermon, and the sermon moment that got him was a preacher was preaching on Genesis 3, and he looked out into the audience and said, Adam, where are you? And for some reason, that stood out to John Gill as if God was calling to him, John Gill, where are you? Um, he was so smart that requests were sent to London after he converted if he could start seminary at a very young age of 12. But they all agreed he was just too young. By the time he was 19, he got baptized into the Baptist church, and he began to start preaching almost immediately, and he would stay at the same church that he ended up going to for 52 years. Yeah, his church uh, was famous in his day, but it also would remain famous a hundred years later because of the preacher who would end up leading that church he was at, none other then Charles Spurgeon would end up pastoring that church in the 1800s. A little uh, little tease for maybe what's coming next week. Ooh. Uh, yeah, yeah, stick around for next week's episode. <laughs> John Gill, uh, he, was, he was a genius. He was a writer. He wrote over 10,000 pages during his life. Uh, many of them originated from lectures that he would preach. He gave weekly lectures that were open to the public. Anyone could come and hear what he was lecturing on that week. He also wrote a biblical commentary that uh, was well known at that time, and he also wrote the first Baptist systematic theology. John Gill grew up during a time that would eventually be kind of called the Enlightenment, although they didn't call it the Enlightenment during the time they were living in it. That kind of came later. Uh, Europe was beginning to push back against its Christian roots. 
Uh, part of the reason was, I think, all the different religious infighting between the different denominations, and part of it was just inventions and people moving away from different things. Lots of reasons for it, but one of the big doctrines that was under attack in his day was the idea of the Trinity. And this breaking from the idea of the Trinity would eventually lead to the rise of deism that would take over in the late 1700s. You think of Thomas Paine, he was a big deist. Uh, John Gill was very defensive of the Trinitarian doctrine, the idea that God was three persons and that each one was equally God. He was also one of the masters of Hebrew and Jewish understanding. He bought every Hebrew book he could. He had this huge library, and he would get his hands on them and read them because he realized and said early on the New Testament was written you know, to Jews by Jews. And so to best understand the New Testament, you really need to understand the Jewish mindset going in. And a lot of people hearing this today might go, yeah, I mean, that's a pretty basic concept, right? We need to understand the context of it. But in Gill's time, this was a very rare thing to understand that, no, you can't really get the New Testament and what Paul and Peter and some of these men were saying if you don't understand the Jewish customs, festivals, and way of life that went into it. Yeah, he was also kind of an interesting preacher. One of the most famous books that he preached on in the Bible, Song of Solomon. <laughs> Not only, I mean, so he started preaching a, a, about the book of Song of Solomon at age 26, and he preached 122 sermons about that book, which... It's weird. I don't, I don't it's know. Not, yeah, yeah. Do you, we can't think of any other preacher who kind of became famous for preaching. I mean, that's Song two years of sermons on Song of Solomon. Yeah. Well, again, always also very concerned about the church and the church undermining God's sovereignty. And so he preached and wrote a lot about the coming deists and Unitarians that were kind of rising to power in the day. And he pretty well and accurately predicted the attack that would come across Christian doctrines from Unitarians and things along those lines. This week on the Truce Podcast, I talk with Caitlin Shass, author of The Liturgy of Politics. We discuss how evangelicalism has gotten tangled up in nationalism. We end up in positions where we take passages intended for Israel and apply them to America in ways that are not not good uh, exegesis. But also, I think then we end up in a position where we have to defend, we have to baptize the whole, especially early history of our country, because if it was founded on Christian values and God has to be defended and Christian values have to be defended, then we end up in a position where we either have to deny some of the atrocities very early in our country's history, or we have to say that those are Christian values. We have an ability in a unique system in which we have some democratic involvement in the, in the running of our country to hold it to account to what God says countries should be. Listen to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or at trucepodcast.com. One last thing about John Gill was that he was writing all of this at a time when Baptists were not very popular. Even when I was reading through uh, you know, the research for this script. And we're, we're looking at numbers mid-1700s, and I see the word Baptist, and it takes me, my brain a second to register, because I'm like, you just don't see the word Baptist in the 1700s that yeah. often. And that's, they're not, they were not a popular group at that time. Today, especially in America, you, there's several Baptist denominations that are very popular all across America. But in that day, Baptists were a small, quiet, and they were disliked by nearly everyone. <laughs> and that it kind of shows you how impactful John Gill was 
that everyone really liked him. Everyone liked him. He, his town really loved him. Even by his theological enemies, they really respected him and what he had to say about the Bible. They all agreed that he was a great preacher and a brilliant man, which may explain this sermon in 1736. He was asked to preach at this, again, this commemoration, this memorial, this terrible storm that hit all of Europe and London. And in this sermon, he reminds his audience about this time Christ's disciples were caught in a terrible storm as well. These words are a call to preserve, given to the disciples of Christ that were with him when they were in great danger during a storm at sea. His care for them during their great distress and their earnest cries to be saved are very elegantly and beautifully described in Psalm 107 by the psalmist when he says, Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy winds, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to the heavens, and they went down into the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men, and were at their wit's end. Then they cried to the Lord in their troubles, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. And they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. A valuable writer is of the opinion that this passage of the Psalms is not to be considered an account of what happened to sailors in some general sense, but as a prediction or prophecy of what would happen to the disciples of Christ when they were on board the ship with him, and that it had its exact fulfillment in the case before us. He believes that the disciples of Christ are the people described who go down to the sea in ships and that do business on great waters. Their occupation and employment, which they held both before and after they were called by Christ to be his apostles, was that of fishermen. They were in a ship with Christ, and then a great storm arose in the sea, which lifted up great waves. They seemed to mount up to the heavens, and they were pounded into the ship. They covered and filled it to the point that they were ready to go down to the depths their souls melted because of the trouble that they were in. And being at their wit's end, not knowing what to do, they ran to their Lord and Master. They cried out to him, their fear, saying, Master, don't you care if we die? And it was then he brought them out of their distress by making the storm calm. The waves were still when he rebuked the wind and the raging of the sea. Now they saw the works of the Lord and his wonders working in the deep. And they said to one another, What kind of person is this that the winds and the sea obey? And they were glad, because the wind and the sea were quiet. So he brought them to their desired haven, the country of Galilee. I cannot say that I am entirely convinced of this writer's perspective. Instead, I think that this psalm refers to a case which had happened, might happen again someday, and is common to many cases at sea. But it does seem specific to this case of the disciples. They were certainly in such distress and danger that they cried to the Lord for help and had wonderful deliverance brought about for them. First off, the disciples were at this time in great danger and distress. It appears not only from their expression 
of theirs unless we die, but also from the narrative of their case in the context of the scripture. It says, Behold, there arose a great storm in the sea, a great tempest. The same word is frequently used both in scripture and other writers to refer to an earthquake. Here it was ascribed to the sea. Such a shaking we read in the prophecy of Haggai, which had now, at least in part, its literal accomplishment. When the Messiah, the desire of all nations, should come, Jehovah would shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. The stormy wind agitated and moved the sea. The waves were created by the wind. A hurricane took the ship and the men that were in it. This threw them into great surprise and fear. One of the other gospel writers calls this tempest a storm of wind, and another calls it a great storm of wind. Both of them use the word lilaps, which is a specific kind of wind or a convergence of many winds. All the gospel writers show the disciples to be in imminent danger. It is also said that the storm arose. If we give to a vulgar notion that winds sometimes are raised by Satan, we should then be tempted to think that this storm was raised by him with malicious intent to destroy Christ and his disciples all at once. For he was always seeking an opportunity to take away the life of Christ and put different people with different methods to the task of doing it, and in the end, accomplished his goal. But Satan has no power to raise, continue, refrain, or lay a wind. And this tempest did not arise by chance, It was no event of fortune, but was ordered to occur at this very time by the all-wise and governing providence of God, who commands and raises the stormy wind. This was the trial of the faith of the disciples of Christ, and so he might have the opportunity to give proof of his deity on the sea. For he had lately done this in several instances on dry land. Now, to be in a storm on land is terrible, but to be caught in one at sea is so much worse. The word behold is set before this one. This is sometimes used when something extraordinary and supernatural is spoken of. This storm seems to have been more than an ordinary one since it was sudden and unexpected. When the disciples entered the ship, the air was serene, the sea was still and quiet. There was no appearance or likelihood of a cyclone. But after they had set sail, at once, and all of a sudden, the storm rushed down upon them. This must have thrown them into great confusion and anxiety. The ship was so covered with waves that it was now full of water. In one of the Gospels, the writer uses the Greek word that not only implies the ship was covered and filled with water, but that it was completely immersed and sinking into the deep. In that moment, the disciples were without hope. What greatly added to and increased their pain was that Christ was asleep. All the gospel writers agree on this, even if they do not use the same word. Mark mentions that Jesus was asleep in the bottom part of the ship. He was not at the stern where the Lord and Master should be. No, to the great concern of the disciples in a deep and sound sleep in that spot. And it was confirmed by the loud cry and repeated call the disciples to him saying, Master, Master, we will die. The sleep arose from natural causes and was more easily brought on him through his very great fatigue in preaching the sermons on the mount. He had just come down from there. He seems to signify that he was in a state of uneasiness and weariness of body. 
a certain man, just before he entered into the ship, said to him, Master, I will follow you wherever you go. To which he answered, The foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. We see here the idea of laying down and resting was at least somewhat on his mind. And accordingly, when he boards the ship, he finds a pillow and lays his head on it, and he falls fast asleep. But though the sleep of his was natural, it was also ordered by the providence of God that it should in this manner come upon him at this time. For this trial furthered the faith of his disciples. The great emergency they were in is expressed in these words, we will die. It is also to be observed that they do not say, we are in danger of being lost, or we are ready to be lost, or we will be lost, but that we are lost, which shows what fear they had in their situation. And that their case was like that of the Apostle Paul and the sailors with him when all hope that they would be saved was taken away. So the disciples saw no probability of escaping by any natural, rational methods. They saw themselves as lost. Christ was their last chance, and here he was asleep. However, they decided to go to him, which brings me to the request they made to him. Lord, save us, which shows first that they believed that he was able to save them. And they had a great deal of reason to believe it. They had seen such considerable miracles lately done in their presence, an account of which was given in this chapter. First, a leper comes to him declaring his faith in him, and that if he were willing, he knew he could cleanse him of his leprosy. When Christ put out his hand and with a single touch said to him, I will, you are clean. And immediately he removed the disease. A centurion addresses him on account of his servant who lay sick, and he signaled he believed that if Jesus would speak the word, his servant would be instantly healed. His reply is, so it will be done for you. And his servant was healed the very same hour. Next, he enters Peter's house where his mother-in-law lay sick of a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her. These instances, together with the multitude of the sick he healed and the demons he cast out, with his word were sufficient to persuade the disciples that he was able to deliver them in this great hour of need. Our Lord indeed blames them for their doubt and lack of faith. The question he put to them as related by one of the gospel writers is, where is your faith? You profess to have, and you had some faith in me a little while ago, but where is it now? Yes, as it says in another of the gospel accounts, why are you so afraid? How is it that you have lost faith? Where is their faith when it is needed? Some faith they had, but it was so small. For the question that appears in the gospel we're focusing on now, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Though as the Son of Man he was asleep, he could save them as the Son of God, since Israel's keeper neither slumbers nor sleeps. He was equally able to save them sleeping as he was awake. Secondly, it is certain that he was able to save them, and it is a matter of fact that he did save them. Being awakened by the disciples, he raised his head from his pillow, stands up, and with a majestic voice, he rebukes them. Peace, be still, and they would be silent. They would hold their peace, stop their mouth, and put a bridle into it. It would no longer go on to threaten them with shipwreck. Their lives were saved. 
The ship moved quietly on, and they all arrived safely at the country of Galilee. Third, this had a powerful effect both upon the sailors. The disciples rightly concluded that their deliverer was more than just a man. They marveled and were terrified. They said to one another, What kind of person is this? What qualities, powers, and perfections is this person capable of? The disciples were convinced in this moment that Christ must be God above all. Men have no power either to raise or lay the wind. There is no such thing as a conjuring wind. There is no such set of men who by magical arts or by all the assistance the devil can give them are able to perform anything of this nature. We are told that some have been so ignorant or wicked as to pretend to sell winds and others no less stupid and impious who have bought them. But this is all a dream and a delusion. These are deceivers and the deceived. What man has gathered the wind in his fist and can hold it there? What is his name and what is his son's name, if you can tell me? Not any of these circumstances or anything like them will you be able to produce. As the Lord said to Job, can you lift up your voice to the clouds that water may come down and cover you? Can you send lightning that it may go and say to you, here we are? So it may be said to any of the sons of men, can you lift up your voice to the winds and send them out wherever you please and command and control them at your pleasure? No, this is not within the compass of the power of a creature. The devil himself has no such power. He may as soon create a world as create the wind or raise a storm. The treasures of the wind are under lock and key, and Satan has no key to it. They are locked away from him, and they are out of his reach. He cannot bring them out when he pleases. He is indeed called the prince of the power of the air, not because he has a power to raise storms and tempests in it, but because he has the government of those principalities and powers that create apostate spirits who, being banished from the realm above, have their home in the air, where they as exiles roam about and wander up and down in it. Now Satan, the angel of the bottomless pit, is king over them. His name in the Hebrew tongue is Abaddon, and the Greek tongue Apollyon. Both signify a destroyer. The only scriptural instance of the power of Satan over the wind is the wind which blew down the house where Job's children were, which destroyed them. But this wind is said not to have come from Satan, but from the wilderness. It comes from a certain point in the heavens, under the government and direction of Jehovah. In the book of Revelations, four angels are represented as standing on the four corners of the earth and holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind would not blow on the earth, nor the sea, or on any tree. But it is not to be understood that the angels are in a literal way holding back the wind, but rather in a mystical sense. They are holding or restraining the evil angels or false teachers from hurting the saints or the ministers of the gospel as a judgment upon those that despise the gospel. God has the sole power and government of the winds in his own hands. The heathens themselves were convinced of this. They set up an idol god, whom they called Aeolos, to preside over the winds. They thought the wind would be a deity. They sometimes built temples, erected altars, and paid homage to it. So Augustus made and performed and performed a vow to Circeus, a wind which greatly affected France, and sometimes came with such force as to rip tiles off their houses. Iapix, Aeroblis, Skyron, and Gagnius are the names of several wind particulars to different people that they worshipped.
they paid their dues to them, that they might not either infect them with diseases or destroy their crops. So when Xerxes brought his numerous forces into Greece, the Greeks made a request to the Oracle of Delphi, who told them that they must pray for the assistance of the winds. And when they heard this, they built an altar and found it favorable to them, for their enemy's whole navy was destroyed and sunk in a storm. These were the beliefs and practices of men who were without the knowledge of the true God. The wind is no deity, but a created tool made by the power of God and governed by him. And it is not under the influence and direction of Aeolus or any other of the rabble deities of the heathens. It is holy and only under the command of him who is the true God. He is the living God and an everlasting king. At his wrath, the earth will tremble and the nations melt and they won't be able to stand against his indignation. He has made the earth by his power. He has established the world by his wisdom and he has stretched out the heavens by his discretion. God is represented as the creator of it. Whatever the secondary causes of it, the forces in motion of physics, the Lord is certainly the first and beginning cause of the wind. Here he stands described as the one who forms the mountains and creates the wind, as he has his treasures of the snow and of the hail. So likewise, he has the stores for the wind, which he brings out when he pleases. He has them prepared, or can and does quickly prepare them when he has need for them. It is said that the God prepared a terrible east wind, a plowing one, which plowed up the land and blew it in the face of Jonah, so that he was almost suffocated with it. And with the sun beating upon him must have been quite an affliction. The Lord is also said to send out a great wind into the sea to fetch back Jonah, who, being sent on an errand, was disobedient and fled from the presence of God. The wind, as boisterous and as blustering as it sometimes is, was more obedient to the command of God than the prophet. He says to one wind, go, and it goes, and to another, come, and it comes. He makes use of them for his ends and his purposes. He makes use of them for his ends and purposes. Sometimes in a way of mercy, as when he made a wind to pass over the earth, then there are such plowing east winds which the sandy deserts plow up the continent and cause the sand to form in sandstorms that cover men and camels and bury them in it. With wind he brought quails from the sea and let them fall by the camp of the Israelites for their food and refreshment. It was with the wind that he brought up a great rain on the land of Israel after they had been without one for three and a half years. When the Lord caused the sea to go retreat, by a strong east wind all night, and made the sea a dry land, and the waters were divided so that the Israelites could pass through as if on dry land. And sometimes he uses them in a way of judgment, as when he did blow with his wind, and the sea covered the Egyptians. They sank as lead in the mighty waters. In the same way, he broke the ships of Tarshish with an east wind. But whether it be one way or another, he makes use of the stormy winds in fulfilling his work. As he has made the sea and all that is in it, so he governs it, lifts up its waves, and restrains them by the word of his power. This is very fully and beautifully expressed by him in the book of Job in the following manner. Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb, when I made clouds its garments and thick darkness its swaddling band, and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, This far will you come and no farther? And here will your proud waves be stayed. 
Jesus has the power of the winds and the sea. Here it must inevitably follow that he is truly and properly God. This is evident from just the story before us. It said that he rebuked the wind and the sea, a phrase that is used only of the divine being and cannot be said of any other than the Most High God. Who rebuked the Red Sea and it was dried up? And who stands distinguished from all created beings by this, that he stilled the noise of the waves and the hearts of the people? The Messiah makes use of this as an argument to prove that he is able to redeem because he can rebuke the sea and dry it up, and also cover the heavens with clouds and tempests. This was done by speaking a word only, just in the same manner as he had a little before healed the centurion's servant, and it was done in an authoritative way. He commanded the winds and the waters as the Lord and master of them, and they obeyed him. Never was any such thing heard of as performed by a mere creature. It's reported that the Danish king, Kenter, one day was walking by the seaside. His attendants praised him to the skies and even proceeded to compare him to God himself. Offended at these extravagant praises and willing to convince them of their folly and impiety, he ordered a chair to be brought out. He sat himself where the tide was about to flow and turned to the sea and said, O oh, sea, you are under my dominion, and the land I sit on is mine. I charge you not to presume to approach any farther, and do not dare to wet the feet of your king. Having said this, he sat still for some time, as if expecting the sea should obey his command. But as the tide advanced as usual, he took this occasion to let his foolish flatterers know that the titles of Lord and master, belong only to him that the wind and sea obey. There is one thing more of note in this instance of our Lord's power over the wind and sea, that when he rebuked them, not only the wind ceased, but the sea immediately became calm. This is very unusual and extraordinary, for after the wind had ceased and the storm is over, the waters of the sea, being agitated, should keep raging and stay violent for a time. But here, as soon as the word was spoken, that very moment the wind ceased and the sea was calmed. One must be blind to the revelation to read this account and deny the deity of Christ. One must be driven to one or another of these two, either to deny the truth of the fact and circumstances of it, or to believe that Jesus Christ is truly and properly God. Here the disciples were certainly right in their crying to him for deliverance when they were in great danger and distress. He upholds all things by the word of his power, by whom all things were created and in whom all things remain, and therefore has a power of ruling, ordering, and disposing all things according to his will and pleasure. And even as a mediator, he has all power in heaven and on earth given to him, which he makes use of on the behalf of his own people, both for their temporal and spiritual good. The disciples, seeking him, found him to be even in a literal sense a hiding place from the wind and a cover from the storm. All are right who, being sensible of their perishing condition, know they have rescue in him for eternal life and salvation. All men are in such condition as the descendants of Adam. The sentence of death passed on to all men, for that is the punishment on all who have sinned. All men are transgressors of the law of God and stand charged with the breaches of it. Every man and woman are guilty to the curses of it and to the wrath of God for the violation of the law. 
God's elect themselves are, by nature, children of wrath, just like any other. We are equally deserving of it as being in our nature dead. But all men are not as sensible as this, as some feel whole, strong, healthy, and hearty in their own abilities and believe they don't need a doctor. They are rich in their own account and have plenty of goods, and they feel they need nothing. But they are dead in sins, yet have no feeling of their wretched conditions. No man repents of his wickedness, saying, What have I done? Everyone turns to his own course, and this is and will be the case, unless the Spirit of God convinces him of his sin and judgment. And then they see themselves about to die, and will cry out in the bitterness of their soul, What must I do to be saved? Let them look upon themselves as lost and undone because of the anger of the Lord. Let them have no rest in their bones because of their sin. They feel a storm rising in their own hearts. The law works wrath in them, and there is nothing but a certain fearful looking for judgment. When they look upwards, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men. The storm of wrath is gathering thick and black, and it is ready to break and fall upon them. They are like the people of Israel at the foot of Mount Sinai, who came to blackness darkness and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of the words which they had heard believe that the word should not be spoken to them anymore for they could not endure that which was commanded and so terrible was the sight that Moses said I am terrified and trembling and what adds to their distress is that they find they are not able to help themselves and don't know which way to escape but alas They don't know where to go from the Spirit or flee from the presence of God. They are sensible that rocks and mountains cannot hide them from the face of Zion that sits upon the throne. Their own righteousness appears no better than rags which cannot cover them from the avenging justice of God. For they are convinced of the insufficiency of their righteousness to justify them before God. Now where should such poor perishing creatures go but to Christ, just as the disciples did in their distress? And say to him as they did, Lord, save us, or we will die. Shouldn't they go in a humble manner, as Behenadad's servant did to the king of Israel, and prostrate themselves at his feet, and say as the tax collector did, God, be merciful to us sinners? Such souls have a great deal of reason to believe that they will find this man, the Lord Jesus Christ, as a shelter from the wind. God has appointed him to be his salvation to the ends of the earth. He sent him, and he came to be the Savior of the world. It is a faithful saying that deserves credit and is worthy of all acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save the chief of sinners. He had become the author of the eternal salvation to all that obey him. His name is called Jesus because he saves his people from all their sins and from all the dreadful effects of them. He saves them from the law, the curse, Satan, and the world, hell, the second death, and the wrath to come. He is mighty to save, able to save to the uttermost, all that come to God by him. And he is willing, as he is able, for he has said, Look at me, and you will be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is none else. His atoning sacrifice fully finishes sin. His righteousness justifies from all things. His blood sprinkled upon the conscious lays the tempest there saying, peace, 
be still. Let's get to the end. The reason for the sermon is the great storm, commonly called the high wind, which arose the 26th and continued to the 27th of November, 1,733 years ago. On account of this, a day of remembrance was appointed by public authority. It is not easy to say what other disasters and calamities it brought with it here and other parts of Europe, how many buildings big and small were thrown down in cities, towns, and villages, what devastations were made in parks, gardens, and enclosures, how much shipping was destroyed, and what is worst of all, how many souls all at once launched into an endless eternity. To give the details of these things would be long and tedious, and in a great measure useless, after so many stories have been printed and so many books published. It is remarkable that on this very day, seven years ago, a considerable storm of wind arose, which blew about the same time the first did, in its greatest fury, which we now commemorate. I have reason to believe that there is one here present who had been cast away in it and remarkably delivered after having been exposed to the most imminent danger. It is Mr. Robert Ingen, a member of the Church of Christ at Horsley Down, under my care, who was cast away on the Goodwin Sands, November 27, 1729. He was in his ship Endeavor, homeward bound from Virginia. He, with the whole ship's crew, were saved in a small rowboat after they had been for some hours exposed to the wind and sea. I do not doubt that such a person retains a sense of the mercy shown them and thankfully acknowledges the goodness of God. I will close it all with a word of exhortation. Let us adore the perfections and observe the operations of the Father, Son, and Spirit in the managing of our affairs. The concern that the Father of Christ has is not contested, and there should be no hesitation about the Son when the story now understood is carefully considered. And if there is any about the Holy Ghost, it is observed that the heavens were at first garnished by him, and he moved up the face of the waters and brought the present earth into the form and order. In addition, his extraordinary gifts bestowed upon the apostles on the day of Pentecost came down upon them with a rushing, mighty wind. And the everyday operations of his grace and the souls of men are compared to the wind. The wind blows where it wills, and you hear the sound, but can't tell where it comes and where it goes. John 3, 8. And so is everyone that is born of the Spirit. Let us also take notice of the providence of God, and never let it be forgotten by us or buried in oblivion. We should make every use of these truths for ourselves and transmit them to our children. Again, in a view of awful dispensations of providence, let us humble ourselves before God, since these show the mighty hand of the Lord. Let us stand in awe of his righteous judgments. How soon and how easy can he make this large and populous city and the whole kingdom a heap of rubbish. Sanctify the Lord of hosts. Make him your fear and your dread. To conclude, in a view of all the wrath and ruin, which is ours on account of all our sins and transgressions, let us take sanctuary in Christ. He is a strength to the poor and a strength to the needy in their distress. He is a refuge from the storm and a shadow from the heat.
He talks a lot about the wind, the waves, and other features, and how God was the you know the creator of these things and controls them. And, and I thought all of those were really interesting points. But one thing that was kind of really novel to me in this sermon, and maybe it was to you as well, these were experienced fishermen. They knew storms. They had been out on the sea. They weren't, you know, they took off at night. They weren't afraid to go out onto the sea at night. But when things were bad, when things looked really, really bad, where did these men go? They didn't try to grab the nets. They didn't try to grab the ropes. They didn't do any of that. They all gave up on the boat and ran downstairs to the man who was napping, a man who did not have sailing experience, a man who was not a captain of the sea, not a fisherman at all. They went to someone that was napping downstairs and they asked him and they cried out to him for help and with a word christ you know awoke and the storm was instantly silent and it just kind of dawned on me when he was preaching it that way that i really realized man no they knew who they were running to they knew they were running to god because why else would experienced fishermen run to a man who was napping downstairs who had no fisherman experience at all they knew what they were really running to Thank you for listening to today's episode of Revive Thought. Special thanks to Patrick Studebaker for narrating today's episode. Patrick was recently on uh, one of our trivia nights, our church history at yes. trivia nights. Uh, we had a lot of fun there. If you uh, haven't seen those, go check those out on our Facebook page, Revive Studios Facebook page. He is on the Cave to the Cross Apologetics podcast. You can go find that, search for that in your feed if you want to hear more from Patrick. If you enjoyed this episode of Revive Thoughts, uh, we have other shows as well. Check out Revived Radio, bringing radio sermons from the past back to life with the backstory, similar format to Revive Thoughts, and it's hosted by my wife. She does all of the writing, selecting of sermons, enhances the audio so it doesn't sound quite as grimy as it did when we get a hold of it. And also check out Revive Devos every single day, a two to three minute devotional bit from a famous preacher of the past hosted by Nathaniel. He does a wonderful job, and I usually listen to it on my way to work. It's perfect for in the morning while you're eating breakfast or on your way to work or whatever kind of devotional side bit you may need. And also Revive Thoughts Deep Dives. We've done two of those. Joel and I are in the process of beginning to write and get ready for the next uh, two that we have planned out. And they are going to be great. Be looking forward to those. So if you want to catch up, you can listen to the previews, but you'll need to join us on the Revive Thoughts premium team to listen to the full episodes. Uh, This is Troy and Joel, and this is Revive Thoughts. This week on the Truce Podcast, I talk with Caitlin Schess, author of The Liturgy of Politics. We discuss Christian political involvement and some of the false gospels incorporated in evangelicalism. Listen to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or at trucepodcast.com.